the basic presumption of most of science is that the world exists out there. Einstein says the belief in an external world independent of the perceiving subject is the basis of all natural science. And that's kind of the starting point of science, is that, well, there are these real things out there in the world, and so let's investigate them and find out their laws. And these laws of science are in some sense objective. Well, this doesn't square very well with, or so it seems, with what some of the mystics teach. Namely, our subjective idea of self and the objective idea of a, of a world existing out there is in some sense an illusion. So I'd like to explore this question, and by exploring it, somehow uh, dissolve, help dissolve this apparent incompatibility. So what is this teaching uh, of the mystics about uh, selflessness? Well, this has two parts. One is that there's no self inside, so to speak, and the other is there's no self outside. And by self here, we mean there's no kind of real existence uh, behind objects. Now, this sounds pretty crazy. And it is crazy because it totally contradicts our common sense. We're brought up to basically understand the world as having these existing objects out there. And here we are. We're born. We live. We die. Um, there's something there, right, that, that is born and that dies, or so we think. Now, this teaching of the mystics doesn't deny that there is this immediacy of awareness that knows. And it doesn't deny that there's the immediacy of appearances that arise in this awareness. What it's denying is that there's more to it than that, that there's something behind these appearances, and that there's something behind this awareness of appearances. There's something more to it. There's a self. There's some existing thing back there that's somehow real. Here's a quote from Longchenpa, who is a famous Tibetan Dzogchen master in the tradition of Buddhism. And he says this, Although not really existing, things still appear. From their own side, however, such things are void by nature. These void appearances do not actually exist. They have no foundation, no support, no beginning, middle, or end. They're like magical creations or visual apparitions. Furthermore, in the exact same manner, there's no inner consciousness to grasp anything. All is pure, like empty space. Now, the mystics say that this isn't just fanciful uh, metaphysical speculation or some dogma that we just need to accept on faith or something. They say that we can actually verify this in our own experience, that this, if we look clearly at what's happening in awareness, that this is the truth that can be realized. But the obstacle to this is this persistent sense that, well, don't things really exist out there? And this world seems to have a regularity to it. You know, I park my car out there, and I come here into this room, and I go back out, and there it is again. There's this lawfulness to the appearances. And what explanation is there for that if it's not that there's some real objective world out there that's giving rise to these experiences? Isn't that the most reasonable explanation, that there's really some world out there, and it's kind of sending these uh, appearances to us, and that's why they're regular? It seems so natural, so irrefutable. 
Well, what I hope to do is to really examine this and show you how that can be compatible with what people like Longchenpa say. So one of the uh, approaches to doing this is to engage in spiritual inquiry. There's a teaching by the Buddha that goes like this. You should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there is only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. And in reference to the cognized, only the cognized. So to give you a sense of what this might mean, I'm going to draw three lines on this board. Let's see. Now there's a visual appearance. And what is seen, there's only what is seen. So there's just the appearance of three black lines on a whiteboard. Now even that, have, you're, you're adding a little bit more. But to give you a sense of what I'm talking about here, let me just rearrange these lines a little bit. So I'll draw the same three lines in a different arrangement. Now you still see just three black lines on the board. That's what's appearing in the visual field, the same as before. But since you were all raised in our culture with the English language for many, many years, you have learned to see this particular arrangement of three lines as something more. Your mind adds something more to this appearance. It projects or superimposes onto this experience the idea A, the letter A. I know what that is. That's an A. And it's so conditioned that it's just automatic. It's unconscious. You see that, and you can't even not see the letter A. So that's the sense of what is meant by this teaching, that there's, it's pointing us to this fact that when we are experiencing the world, there are just these appearances. And then there's this activity of the mind that adds something to that. And it's so unconscious we don't even notice it. And so you can do this with other things as well in your experience, like, say, the chair you're sitting on. In what is sense, there's only the sense. What's really appearing in awareness directly? Well, you can touch the chair, you can feel the pressure of the chair on your, um, maybe feel it on your back if you're leaning back. And then on top of that immediate experience, there's the thought that there's some real chair there underneath this real body. There's this additional thing that we do. So just like we add the idea that this is the letter A, we add the idea that there's this physical chair that's underneath this physical body. That's something that the mind is doing. In reference to the cognized, there's only the cognized. So the mind is doing that. There's no denying that. It's just that that's all that's going on. That's all we really know in our direct, immediate awareness. So the problem isn't that we have these ideas. These naturally arise, and we couldn't function in the world without them very well. But we don't see what's going on, and so we mistake it for reality. This, this letter A, we all know that, well, there's not some real objective A in the same sense that we think there's a chair. So it's easier to see with the A. I can 
erase the A, and it's gone in a way that I, it's harder to erase the chair. You know, it doesn't quite, <laughs> quite work that way. And so we have a stronger sense that that chair really exists objectively. Now, the mystics weren't the only ones who were kind of aware of this going on. Here's Einstein again. In our thinking, we attribute to this concept of the bodily object a significance, which is to high degree independent of the sense impression which originally gives rise to it. This is what we mean when we attribute to the bodily object a, quote, real existence. By means of such concepts and mental relations between them, we're able to orient ourselves in the labyrinth of sense impressions. These notions and relations appear to us as stronger and more unalterable than the individual sense experience itself, the character of which is anything other than the result of an illusion or hallucination is never completely guaranteed. So he's talking here about the same thing, the fact that the mind is correlating these sense impressions and helping orient us in the world, and there's really no guarantee that that what the mind is doing in all of this isn't in some sense a hallucination or an illusion. So one approach to investigating this in a deeper way and breaking down this illusion is to look straight at it and analyze it. You can take the approach of the, the teaching of the Buddha I mentioned a few minutes ago and you can <coughs> meditate on things in that manner and just see for yourself if you can notice the mind superimposing objective existence onto things. Another approach is a more analytical approach, and this is particularly useful or effective for people with a more philosophical or scientific bent. And the middle way Buddhism school, the uh, Madhyamakas, are especially good at this, and they have refined these analytical meditations uh, over centuries, and, and they have, you might have seen the pictures of the, of the monks slapping their hands in debates and things, and that's what they're doing. They're debating about whether something really exists inherently in itself or not, and they deconstruct causality, and they deconstruct time, and all of this. And it's a way of retraining the mind to be aware of these assumptions it's making and connecting things. And so through this intellectual training, in a sense, you purify the mind so that you're more aware of these connections that are made and the implicit assumptions that are made between them. I won't follow that approach, but I wanted to mention it because it's a traditional approach. But uh, I'd like to do something kind of similar with various examples from our experience that you might be familiar with to uh, hopefully bring out this teaching a little bit more. So one example is the idea of a border, spatial distinction. Consider, for example, the border, say, between the United States and Canada. Now, is that border objectively existent? Is it really there? It's obviously not physically there, but in a certain sense, it has the qualities of an objectively existing thing for all practical purposes. I can't decide that, well, I don't like the border where it is. Uh, I think I'll move it. 
Or, uh, you know, I think I'll just pretend that doesn't exist. It's just a figment of my imagination. After all, the border doesn't really exist, so I'll just ignore it. Well, there are consequences to that, just as there are consequences to ignoring the chairs here, you know, and I'll trip over it, right? So there's consequences of ignoring this imaginary border. You can't just cross the border and expect to have no consequences, right? There's customs there, and if you just ignore the customs and drive across the border, you're going to get in big trouble. Uh, you'll find that if you pull out your wallet and pull out a few bills and try and buy something, it's not going to work the same way as it does south of the border. So certain things functionally change when you cross that border. You could even do uh, an experiment. Let's say you didn't know where the border was. No one told you. Uh, you, never, you don't have a map. Uh, you have no idea where the border is. You could do an experiment and just wander around and see where money changes and where there are uh, customs stations and things like this. And you could sort of get a rough idea experimentally of where this objectively existing border is. And so you could do these kind of scientific experiments to verify the existence of this thing called a border and convince yourself that it's quote-unquote really there. So from a personal point of view, it's kind of like an objectively existing thing. And yet we know that this is just a convention, that the United States collectively and Canada collectively have agreed on where the border will be. That sets a kind of objective existence for individuals in the countries and really the rest of the world. And yet we know that it's only a convention. The countries could agree to change where the border exists. And yet still at the individual level, it acts like an objectively existing thing. So that's an example that maybe gives you some sense of how something that is just a convention, ultimately, can still kind of function as if it has some kind of objectivity to it. We can actually go out there and verify it's there, and, uh, and we can't just wish it away or imagine it away. Now that's fine and good, you might say, but there are some really existing boundaries out there in nature, right? So. What about the boundary between the Pacific Ocean and the land? You know, the Pacific coastline. There's a line on the map that shows the Pacific coastline going along. Well, that's obviously not just something that the uh, U.S. and Canadian governments agreed on. The, the land is there and the ocean's there, and there's, that's just given to us by nature. So it must just objectively exist, or so it seems. We can look at this a little more carefully. We have to dig a little deeper here. But we can look at this more carefully, and it's interesting what we find. So imagine the Pacific coastline. Well, if you actually follow it, it's you know pretty clear. You've got land and ocean, land and ocean, land and ocean, and you follow the Pacific coastline down here. But where is the Pacific coastline at the mouth of the Columbia River? Where do you draw the line across the river? You could, say, pick two points on either side of the mouth, you know, one point in Washington and one point in Oregon, and just say, well, that's, that's where we'll draw the line. Uh, you could maybe look for where the salt water changes to fresh water or something like that. But those lines are arbitrary. We have to pick points. We just have to make up where to draw the line. Nature doesn't tell us how to draw that line there the fresh water and the salt water, well, where exactly does one start and the other begin? They just sort of continuously merge into each other. There's no definite line there. 
that you can find. So when we try and draw this border, we find at least at certain points, it isn't given to us by nature in an obvious way. We have to step in and make some call. We have to make some choice in saying, well, the border goes this way. You can say, okay, fine, well, that's just one little uh, thing we can ignore that. Most of the place, it's land and ocean along the coast. Okay, well, let's go look right at the shore. Uh, so you walk down there to the beach, and here's the surf, and it's coming in, and it's going out, and it's coming in, and it's going out. Well, where do you draw the line? Well, the point is we think that these boundaries are given to us by nature, but are they really? Do you experience that the world is just, that this chair exists? We might think that this chair has an objective existence. Most of us would agree that the chair objectively exists. We can't just imagine that it doesn't exist. Well, what if I broke the legs off and ripped the seat off in the back and threw them all on the floor? Would there be a chair? No. So the objective existence of the chair, what happened to that? Well, you say, the, the chair doesn't really exist. It's just an arrangement of those pieces. Uh, what really existed were the legs and the, and the back and the, the, the seat and all of that. Well, what about those? I could take one of those metal legs. It's probably stainless steel or something. I could grind that up. I could melt it. I could do various things. It would no longer be a leg. So what happened to the leg? Was the leg objectively existing? Did it really exist? No, it was just an arrangement of these atoms, a particular arrangement. And when they're arranged in that particular way, we agree to call it a leg. Okay, fine, you say. Well, the, but the atoms really exist. Well, do they? What are atoms? Well, there are electrons and protons and neutrons in a particular arrangement. And if you rearrange them, you have a different arrangement. You could no longer have iron or chromium or carbon. You could have oxygen or, or just uh, free particles. So these atoms themselves are also just arrangements of more fundamental particles. And when they're arranged in a particular way to have certain properties, we say, oh, well, that's a carbon atom. And this is a convention we have. We agree to call that a carbon atom. And so let's go down to the elementary particles. Well, they must really exist, right? But even the, the properties like their rest mass or their charge or something like this, you might say, well, those are objective properties, aren't they? Well, you see in atom smashers that these particles also transform into each other. And really, what is an elementary particle but a particular configuration of energy? You can take elementary particles and annihilate them with their antiparticles, and you just get a flash of energy. And so what were the particles? Well, they were a particular configuration of this energy. And you keep digging down like this. You keep digging down. You can take anything you like. You keep analyzing it in this way. What do you find? You find nothing except our idea to attribute existence to a particular arrangement of something else which itself is nothing more than an idea to name a particular arrangement of something else, and it all just unravels. And so this is a kind of inquiry you can go through if you have an intellectual bent.
And you can have an aha moment. You can realize that, whoa, you know, what I was taking for granted there, it just isn't there. And so these sorts of exercises can actually transform your experience of the world. Your moment-to-moment experience of the world can transform. And I'm not here to give you an aha moment. I'm here to suggest that it's possible to have an aha moment by engaging in these exercises yourself through repeated practice. So how about time? St. Augustine has a great uh, passage in his Confessions. He says, What is time? Who can easily and briefly explain it? Who can even comprehend it in thought or put the answer into words? Yet is it not true that in conversation we refer to nothing more familiarly or knowingly than time? And surely we understand it when we speak of it. We understand it also when we hear another speak of it. What then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. But if I wish to explain it to him who asks me, I do not know. This is an example of how we take something for granted. We take it for granted that there's this thing called time. But we start to look at it and we see, well, we don't really know what it is. Now, in our culture, we might look to science to explain to us what time is. And in Newtonian physics, it was considered this absolutely existing objective continuum uh, where you had a definite ordering of events from past to future. And then Einstein came along and he overthrew all of this. And he said, well, actually, the ordering of events from past to present to future depends on your reference frame, your point of view, depending on how you're moving relative to what's happening things can actually change the order in which they happen. So what is the objective order in which time flows? Well, if it depends on your reference frame, there is no absolutely objective order of time flow. It depends on a frame of reference. Well, what's the frame of reference? There's no absolute frame of reference. That's for us to choose. So depending on what frame of reference we choose, the events will be ordered differently. So there's no... There's nothing to grasp onto there as an objective ordering of events. Where does the measurement of time come from? We might think that that has some objective existence. Well, there are days. Obviously, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, and there's the cycle. And this is, in fact, how traditionally people have measured time. You measure it in days, or you measure it in years. You see the seasons, the cyclic seasons, and then you can count them. And then, of course, in the last few hundred years, we have these mechanical clocks that have evolved, and we actually don't depend on the rotation of the Earth around its axis or around the sun to tell time. These are, in fact, not uniform measurements of time. There's actually a very slight uh, irregularity in the rotation of the Earth. So scientists have decided that, well, that's not a regular timepiece. What good is a measure of time if it's not a regular time piece? If it varies a little bit from day to day, if you measure things relative to that, you're just going to get all confused. You need a measurement of time that's very dependable and regular to do science with. So they invented atomic clocks, and these are extremely regular and precise. Using an atomic clock, scientists have defined a second. They define a second as the duration 
of 9,192,631,770 cycles of radiation corresponding to the transition between two hyperfine levels of the ground state of cesium-133 at rest at a temperature of absolute zero. <laughs> but the point of that is this wasn't given to us by nature. We decided that time is to be measured according to this convention. And what's more is that length is the same way. The, actually, the definition, the scientific definition of length now, in terms of time, the length of a meter is defined as the length of the path of light, in other words, how far light travels in a vacuum during a time interval of exactly 1 over 299,792,458 of a second. So they take a certain number of seconds, and you see how far light travels, and that's a meter. So that's how length is defined. So it ultimately goes back to the time, which is based on our convention of how to measure things. And so the point here is that we are deciding how to break up this thing, and in a certain sense, how to define time. What is it? Well, it's this thing that is defined by this procedure of how to measure it. So what we're doing is we're correlating these, these recordings of something and then inventing this thing called time to relate them to each other and say, well, this recording and that recording, we're going to say that they're recording this thing called time and they're related to each other in this way. But this is an interesting idea of the, the precision. How does this precision develop? Uh, in the beginning, the measurements were very vague. Uh, we can maybe get a, a sense of this by considering the measuring of length. So let's say you've got a horse, and you want to say how tall the horse is. Well, that's a tall horse. No, that's a short horse. You know, that's your kind of rough first approximation of measuring a horse. Well, I might think the horse is tall, and you might think the horse is short. And so this isn't uh, serving our purposes of having some agreement on how to measure the horse if it's just some arbitrary... Uh, idea that I have about how, what a tall horse is, and your idea may be totally different. And so there's no standard measurement there. It's arbitrary. So let's say we want to have a more standardized way of measuring the horse. Well, we could say, well, let me just take my hand, and I'll just put, uh, put my hands hand to hand up until I get to the top of the horse from, from the ground. And I'll measure how many hands tall the horse is. And this is actually what, how people used to measure horses. There's a couple problems with this. One is my hand maybe isn't as wide as yours. And maybe even my hand will grow or shrink or, you know, I could lose a finger or something. You know, who knows? You know, my hand isn't necessarily always the same length and it's not the same as yours. And so if I measure the horse that way and you measure the horse that way, we might get different results. I might get 15 hands and you'll get 16. <laughs> the other problem is, well, where's the top of the horse exactly? <laughs> You know, is it the tip of the ears? Is it the tip of the ears when the horse is grazing? Or is it the tip of the ears when the horse is standing up straight? Where do you exactly measure that? How do you define that? So you need a procedure. You need to say, well, we need to agree. Again, we're adopting a convention here for our purposes of getting an objective measurement. And so we say, well, let's go up to the shoulder of the horse 
Because that's not going to change when the horse is grazing or not. The shoulder doesn't change. And so we'll measure from the ground up to the shoulders. And to resolve this hand issue, let's just call a hand four inches. And we've defined four inches in terms of, let's say, the meter, which you know, I already told you what that is. So now we can measure horses pretty well. So what's key about this is that as this measurement process evolves, it's pushed forward towards precision by our decision, our desire to have objective agreement about what the results of measurements are, to eliminate that arbitrariness. And so we're inserting into the actual process of measuring this idea that we want the measurements to be invariant with time. We don't want it to vary from one day to the next. We want it to be invariant with place. If I measure the horse here and you measure it over there, it shouldn't change. And we want it to be invariant depending on who's doing it, so that I follow the same procedure. Well, you can follow the same procedure, and you'll get the same result for the same horse. And if we do all of that, we have a standardized system for doing it, and we get different results, then we can attribute it to some change in the horse. Otherwise, well, it might be because my hand is different from yours, and then confusion ensues. Okay, so this whole process of measurement is designed, is constructed, so that we'll find objective things in the world. And this idea of invariance, of having something remain the same when something else has changed, is the idea of symmetry. And symmetry is most easily seen in terms of geometric figures. That's probably what most of us are familiar with. So take a square, for example. You can rotate that square 45 degrees, and it'll look different. But if you rotate it 90 degrees, it'll look the same. So it's said that a square has a rotational symmetry that's defined by 90-degree rotations. You can rotate it 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees, 360 degrees. And that's a symmetry. You do something, you change something, namely rotation, and it ends up the same, looking just as it did before. And so this is the, this is the idea. You change something, and it leaves something unchanged. <clears throat> so that's what we're talking about with measurement. We change something, namely doing it today or doing it tomorrow, and yet something remains the same, the height of the horse. So we, we figure out this way of measuring things so that even though time and place change, something remains the same, namely that result of the measurement. It's 15 hands tall. So by construction, things are coming out invariant because of the symmetry. A symmetry in something is an extraction of what is invariant, even though time and place and all these other things are changing. And so you can see this in our direct experience with, say, this eraser or a, a kid playing with a wooden block or a book or whatever you like. If you look at this, in your visual appearance, you see maybe a rectangle. Well, if I rotate this, you see a different rectangle. If I rotate it again, you see a different rectangle. You're seeing different things as it's rotated around. Something's changing. Okay, so there's change happening here in appearance. Well, what is invariant? What is unchanging here? 
we've learned from the time we were little kids playing with blocks to imagine a three-dimensional object that isn't changing. It has the same length and width and thickness. We're just seeing that from different points of view. Even little kids learn about symmetry. When they learn to see a three-dimensional object, or really imagine a three-dimensional object existing out there in space, they're positing this existing thing out there as an invariant structure in their experience. So what they're immediately seeing are these different rectangles, really a two-dimensional image. You could be looking on a TV screen and seeing the same thing. But we're imagining out there something more. We're positing out there behind the appearance, something extra. We're imagining a three-dimensional object. Does that three-dimensional object exist directly in our experience? No. What exists in our visual appearance are just the visual appearances. And what is seen, there's nothing but what is seen. So what this is getting at is the fact that science is really not about studying the objective world. It doesn't need to assume that there is an objective world. What it's really doing is it's a way of, you might say, consciousness knowing itself in such a way that invariance or order is revealed. The word cosmos, which is another synonym for the universe, in Greek it means order. That's actually the meaning of the word cosmos. It means order. And so this order of the cosmos is something that emerges through this way of looking at it. Really, we're seeking out by construction invariances in time and place and person. What is revealed, of course, naturally, by design, are things that are invariant by time and place and person. And, well, what are things that are invariant by time and place and person? Well, those are exactly things like a three-dimensional eraser that we can think of as having some existence out there. So the point of all this is that scientists have normally thought that we need to think of there as being an objectively existing reality in order to explain what science does. Well, what is science doing if there aren't objective laws, if there isn't an objective universe out there? What are we searching for? What are we finding? What do these laws mean? How do you explain how science works? How can you make sense of any of that if there isn't an objectively existing world out there? Well, this starts to address how that can be possible, how to view what science is doing from the perspective of contemplatives, from a non-dual perspective. You can see science as this way of revealing order through a particular way of looking at experience in a way that really filters out everything except for that which can be regarded as invariant or objectively existing. So let me end with this quote by Heisenberg. Heisenberg says, We have to remember that what we observe is not nature in itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. So scientific theories, you might say, are the answers to the question what is the order of experience? So if there are any comments or questions, we can have a little bit of discussion. Can you talk about the boundary of the self a little bit more? 
Yeah, unfortunately, the subjective inquiry was kind of banished from the realm of science. Now, there was a movement by William James, and he proposed that we take the scientific method and we apply it to consciousness, and we look at our own subjective experience, and it was called radical empiricism. And it didn't really take root back when he proposed it. And one of the reasons was that many of the people trying to do this didn't have techniques for reliably observing the inner states of consciousness. Their minds were scattered. They were all over the place, and they couldn't see things introspectively, very clearly, very stably. You know, it's like trying to do precise science without standardized measurement procedures. You know, you have people just arguing about whether the horse is tall or short. Now, the contemplative traditions, of course, have all of these techniques that have been refined over centuries and centuries. Unfortunately, they weren't brought into science back then, but there is this big movement, and actually Alan Wallace is a big proponent of this. It's really to take these really precise techniques for observing ourselves and our inner states and what we call the subjective realm and applying them in a scientific way to experience so that science isn't then limited to just the study of the quote-unquote objective world, but it can also be applied to the subjective world as well. I think scientists would say that, yes, they're looking for order, and the ones that believe in objective world are saying they're looking for the right order, Mm -hmm. the one, the, the one that's correct, as opposed to some arbitrary sense of order that, that isn't the correct one. Mm-hmm. Are you suggesting that it's relative in the sense that um, scientists could find a number of different descriptions of reality that all discover some sort of order, mm-hmm. but those descriptions are uh, inherently different? Well, in fact, they have. Uh, as science has evolved, it's arrived at different scientific paradigms and worldviews that have conceived of the order that they found in different ways. And then, you know, a new observation will come along. And there are various ways that science can deal with that. It can say, oh, well, that's an anomaly. Let's not worry about that. Let's just ignore that. Or it can say, well, we really need to restructure our our whole way of conceiving the world, a new paradigm, to accommodate that new phenomenon. So you can have these different ways of arriving at order, depending on what selection you make of the facts you're willing to consider, depending on what procedures you're, depending on the technology you have. You know, a lot of science evolved because we had the technology to observe certain things. If your technology didn't move in a certain way and we weren't ever able to observe certain atomic phenomena, we'd never arrive at certain ideas of quarks or something if we didn't have particle accelerators. So it also depends on what we use to measure things with. So, yeah, we can find lots of different kinds of order depending on how we look. Fred? Uh, Some of these quotes you read by Einstein, I've read some of his. He seems very uh, insightful in the things he's seen about the illusionary nature of objects, but yet he was never really able to uh, adopt kind of Mm -hmm. quantum physics. I don't know if you have an answer, but you know why he was then able to let go of it? Yeah, I can't really speak for Einstein or channel him or anything, but (laughs) (laughs) from what I've read of of him and his debates before around this topic, he had this approach to science that was a little different philosophically from Bohr. I guess maybe to explain it kind of real simply and briefly, 
Bohr was content with basically looking at science as just a description of trying to understand our experience and not worrying so much about an objective reality behind the appearances. In fact, there's a quote by Bohr here that kind of illustrates that. He says, In our description of nature, the purpose is not to disclose the real essence of the phenomena, but only to track down, so far as it's possible, relations between the manifold aspects of our experience. So he's just saying, look, we have this experience, and we're just trying to figure out how things are related to each other, and we're not trying to posit the existence of some reality beyond our experience. But Einstein was a, he recognized that this positing is imaginary. He said, we shouldn't stop doing it. We should keep positing a, a reality out there, because that actually is what science is trying to do, is trying to see this order that can be thought to exist objectively, and that's kind of part of its doing. So it's, I think, more of a pragmatic attitude of what's the best way for science to move forward. Because he kind of thought that Bohr's attitude was a little bit too extreme in the sense that Bohr would say, well, we shouldn't worry about atoms. You know, they don't really exist. We should just worry about correlating our measurements. And Einstein was like, well, it's really useful to think of atoms as existing. Science can progress that way. And so it was more of a, I think, a pragmatic thing than some kind of ultimate philosophical uh, barrier he had. So, I mean, this whole idea that, we're, that we see what we see and we uh, have things behind them. I'm listening to you, and I, and I realize that uh, in the hearing, there's just what's being heard, so I hear your voice. And in the seeing, there's just what's being seen. I see your body, and I go up there and touch you, and in that feeling, it would just be the feeling. <laughs> but I really want to posit that there's something called time inside of all that, you know? So is there? Can you answer the question? <laughs> well, if you look, can you find it? By positing that, I'm positing that whatever that is, there's something like that inside this voice that's speaking now. Or is it just this voice that's speaking now? Is there anything in this voice that's speaking now what's being heard? So we're just assuming we're here, really. That, we're just assuming there's somebody there. Well, it's like the chair. Yeah, like the chair, right? Yeah. There's no reason. It's all a deception, obviously. Yeah, so, so you might posit some self behind these words. Can you find it? No. Can I find it? No. Can anyone find it? No. Well, we can imagine it's there. That's fine. You know, it's useful. It works, you know, and the same for you and everyone else and, and for the chair, for that matter. You know, we, we all do that with a chair and we agree that's there. And, you know, we can say, oh, well, Tom gave this talk today and we agree, you know, just like we agree that he sat on a chair for a while. But is it really there? Is there anything more? Are we doing anything more than just imagining something outside of what is immediately present? It takes time to develop these, uh, both personally in the sense that you know, it takes time for these insights to transform us, and, but also collectively, you know, this shift in this new worldview that the center is all about. It's not going to happen overnight or anything. And, what we do is just a little piece of the whole puzzle that lots of other people in the world will hopefully contribute to. So one last question, and we should probably wrap it up. And if we move around through life, 
and just take the appearances as being, okay, this is the appearance, you know, right now. And we also use our imagination. Okay, I'm not only seeing this appearance, but I'm, I'm imagining that that's Tom. Mm-hmm. How does that change how we do our lives from before, where we thought, oh, there really is a Tom, he's right there, he's got a brown shirt. Mm-hmm. Ask your second question, I'll see if I can okay. put them together. The second one is, okay, I'm in meditation. And I'm thinking, okay, now I'm going to apply the talk that I heard. What do I do? Well, there were, you know, these exercises like we did with the chair and the legs and the atoms. And the, that's an inquiry that is more powerful to do when your mind is very stable and clear than it is when you're just not, right? So the Buddhists, for example, in their analytical meditations, they view these as complementary to shamatha practice or stability meditations where you try and just focus your mind. And so they actually interchange this analytical inquiry with stability. So if you start to like get too caught up in your thoughts, then you go back to focusing on your breath or something. Mm-hmm. And then you go back to a little inquiry. And then you can, you can play with these so that you're able to inquire with a more spacious, open, uh, clear mind. Uh, and so that's one way that they can interact. And in the beginning, it seems like these are opposed to each other. Well, I'm either wrapped up in thought or I'm stable and clear, you know, and one kind of fights against the other. But they say eventually these integrate and they complement each other and are mutually supportive so that the inquiry actually generates insight that makes the mind even more open and stable and clear, which actually relates to your other question, which is that as you start to experience things as more transparent to this imaginative overlay, so the imagination is still there, oh, there's the chair, oh, there's Wesley. It's still there, but there's this sense of transparency to it, or or the sense of there's not the solidity or the sense of you're really there. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of more open and and relaxed and playful and (laughs) easygoing. So, with that, enjoy the beautiful day outside. Thank you.